All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are continuing our sermon series called Relate. We are taking a look at kind of some critical uh, principles that enable us to relate. This morning, we're going to be talking about friendship. So grab your Bibles. Let's go over to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. If you don't have your Bible with you, not a big deal. Just grab one off the chairs around you. And in our Bibles, we're going over to page 902. 902, going to John chapter 15. On my uh, drive to church this morning, had an interesting experience that I thought um, kind of worked well with the introduction to the sermon. Um, we have a little silver Honda Fit that we drive. Um, not a lot of those, but, um, you know, it's, and, and Lauren got up uh, early and came to do setup before I was, I was ready to come, so she drove and uh, she wore her Kentucky jersey. Um, because uh, Kentucky is almost going to be the SEC champion today when they play Arkansas. If you're an Arkansas fan, I'm sorry, but uh, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's all right. It's NCAA basketball. My wife is uh, an avid fan, so she wore her blue Kentucky jersey today. She has, of course, uh, short brown hair. And as I was driving to uh, church this morning, um, there's the silver Honda Fit at the, at the light and um, blue shirt short brown hair, and I'm, of course, driving by and, and honking and like, hi! And it was not Lauren. Because um, in that moment, you know, the two cars passing each other, that moment that's frozen in time, I'm smiling and she's confused, whoever she was, um, wondering, why is this guy so aggressively greeting me? Um, and I'm asking myself the same question in that moment, of course. Um, and I thought that was actually a pretty good metaphor, honestly, for how we do friendship. Um, you know, we don't do friendship very well in our culture. We really don't, um, especially with all the virtual friends we have today. We have mo- more social media friends and a whole lot less human interaction. And so what ends up happening is we end up in these awkward moments where uh, we're looking for human connection, but we miss it. Uh, we're waving hi to people we don't even know, and we're looking for them to meet needs they can't possibly meet. And, um, and as a result, um, man, things are bad. We have more online virtual connections than ever and fewer flesh and blood uh, interactions and, and connections. And as a result, we have an epidemic of loneliness in our culture. We have an epidemic of loneliness. And, and this isn't just, hey, this is Steve Pastor guy talking. This is like this is real, like social scientists are digging into this and trying to figure this out because it is a broader cultural phenomenon. George Monbiot has provocatively said that we no longer live in the information age. We now live in the age of loneliness, that the information age um, produced a, a, a kind of living that gave birth to the age of loneliness, where we are more engaged with information and with virtual uh, assistance and, and virtual friends and virtual interactions than we are with actual living and breathing human beings. Um, and what's interesting is, is I talk to a lot of people. I meet with a lot of people. And as I'm meeting with them, I hear things like, you know, Steve, I'm, I've just been down lately, right? Um, tired. Uh, man, Steve, I'm, I'm kind of restless. You know, you know what I don't hear a lot? I hear very few people say, you know, Steve, I'm lonely. I'm just lonely. I think it's really interesting that we all at times 
suffer from loneliness, and, and some of us, most of the time, but we don't even know how to name it. Like we're feeling something, but we don't even know what it is. That's part of the sickness. We, we've got something going on, there's something wrong, and we don't even know what it is. And so we think, uh, if it's restlessness, if I'm just being down, I need to be encouraged. If I'm, if I'm restless, I just need to be redirected. I just need to. And so what we end up doing is feeding ourselves more of the very things that are creating the isolation to begin with. And it's having an impact on our culture, an actual impact on our health and well-being. Vivek Mur- Murthy, our Surgeon General, has said many times in recent years that the most prevalent health issue in America is not cancer or heart disease or obesity. It's isolation. Like, that's our Surgeon General (laughs) talking about our culture, the greatest health threat to us today is isolation. Isolation has produced all kinds of physiological, not just psychological, but physiological sicknesses and illnesses. It has affected us deeply, and it has been linked to our increased struggle with addiction. We're a country that is in the grips of addictive behaviors, whether it is um, pres- uh, prescription meds that are used inappropriately, or alcohol, or, or pornography, or even your cell phone. People struggle with addictive behaviors because they're looking to these addictive behaviors to calm the restlessness, to give them a distraction, to, to somehow meet this, um, this feeling that they don't even know how to name. Johan Hari wrote a book exploring the connection between addiction and loneliness. And he made the conclusion that addiction thrives in an environment of isolation. Addiction thrives in a context of loneliness. And he said this. I thought this was really compelling. Um, He said, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. Because addiction thrives in isolation. Addiction thrives in in places where we are not um, humanly connected. So people are turning to things to dull the loneliness instead of people who can help cure the loneliness. And we are increasingly isolated in the process. And it's taking a toll on us as a people, as a culture, as individuals. And the church isn't exempt from this. The church traditionally has been a place where people could find human connection, right? That sense of community is is woven into the very fabric of why we exist and who we are, right? When you read the New Testament, you cannot get away from the fact that we are a thriving spiritual community and we are called to be deeply connected to one another, right? That is woven into the very essence of who we are but even in the church, we don't do friendship well. We have learned to be around people, but not known by them. We have learned to name parts of our church the fellowship hall, where anything but fellowship actually takes place, right? We go down, we drink coffee, we shake hands, we share stories, we laugh at one another, and then we leave, and there's no knowing and being known. There's no genuine vulnerability There's no genuine human interaction. We've turned our life, living, flesh and blood interactions into virtual interactions where you really get no more of me and you know no more of me in an actual contact than you would by taking a look at my online 
profile. You guys, we don't do friendship well, and we're suffering because of it. And I think there's a couple reasons for it, and there's a few themes here that are going to come out. I think as Christians, we, we tend to really value romantic love and family love. Like when you look at the Christian hierarchy, what's most important? Romantic love is really important. Family love is really important. But friendship love? Friendship love is, is the least valued of the loves. It is the most disposable. It is, it is the least permanent, right? Friends are for a season, right? They're for a season. And, and if they pass, if you kind of lose contact with your friends, we care less about our friends than we do our keys, right? Because if you lose your keys, you're going to look for them. But how many friends have you simply just lost? And oh, they're replaceable. Oh yeah, I could find more friends. I can reconnect with them another time. We, can, we just don't value friendship, right? There was even an article published recently on a very well-known Christian website. And in that article, the author argued about the danger of friendship. Because friendship might get in the way of romantic love. Friendship might get in the way of family love. And if, if that happens, then clearly friendship loves an idol getting in the way of the greater loves. There is an implied value system in which we think that, that the highest form of human intimacy is marriage. And right below that is family. And therefore, if you're single, um, you need to get married. <laughs> you need to get married. Uh, it's it just, right? And, and, and we end up valuing married people and devaluing people who aren't. Um, you guys, this is unhealthy. And I'm going to be pretty blunt. It's unbiblical. These things are not um, what Jesus taught. It leaves the singles and the divorcees in our community particularly vulnerable to isolation and marginalization. It decreases their voice and decreases their ability to connect. But it also leaves the rest of us in danger too. Because friendship love, you guys, friendship love is not disposable. Friendship love is not secondary. No matter what you've thought, no matter what you've been taught, no matter what you've experienced in your life, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that it is, in fact, the most important love we can experience in our human relationships. And we are to pursue it fully. We are to redeem our view and renew our experience of friendship as followers of Jesus. All right, so as I dug into this passage and was wrestling with it, um, this thing kind of morphed into two messages. So I ended up dividing it. You're welcome for that. That way you're not sitting here for two hours this morning. Um, but um, this week we're going to be looking at a theology of friendship. Next week we're going to be looking at a praxology of friendship. You're like, I don't even know. Okay, so this week we're looking at, at what the Bible says about friendship and why it's important. Uh, and next week we're going to be looking at how to do it. Like how do we very practically move into genuine friendship relationships? What does this passage have to say to us? about actually being friends, since we know so little of genuine friendship. So we're re- since we're really bad at it, how do we get better at it? So that's where we're going next week. So this week we're, we're kind of in the lesson, and next week is the lab, all right? So just to give you a foretaste. So let's take a look at our passage, and we're going to dig in. So we're in John chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 17, starting in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that somebody lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you, so that you will love one another. The word of the Lord. All right, John 15 is an incredibly, uh, I mean, it's a fascinating passage. I love this chapter. It is, it is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. I would encourage you this week, man, get into John 15, sit in it, read it, you know, like, like just dig into it. It is so rich. And in this passage, there is a very, very compelling metaphor that Jesus uses that he drives home that, that has shaped in many ways a lot of my view of, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He says that, that he is the vine and we are the branches. Right? That's kind of the metaphor that's at the heart of this chapter, that he's the vine and we are the branches. And then he makes some pretty provocative statements like, like if you're going to bear fruit, you have to stay, you have to abide in the vine, right? Because apart from me, you can do nothing, right? So, but when you're connected to me, you, you are fruitful, right? As a vine is connected, or a branch is connected to the vine, um, that's when it blossoms. That's when it becomes fruitful, when we're connected. So it's a metaphor for our relationship, right? It's how we get connected to the love of God through the work of Christ. As, as we are abiding in Christ and feeding off of his love for us, uh, that love is like sap moving into a vine, right? It moves into our lives and it produces a fruitfulness. It produces a response. It changes us, right? It, it makes us alive. Last week, we dug into Galatians 5 and looked at the fruit of the Spirit, Right? The fruit of the Spirit are not things that you do. They're not a checklist you perform. They are a byproduct. They are a result of being connected to the vine. Right? Things like love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Right? I mean, who doesn't want those things? They're the very things we want to experience in our lives. And they are the fruit of abiding. They come from uh, this relationship in which we are connected and, and abiding in this love. Right? So in verse 9, that's kind of what he's digging into. He says, as the Father has loved me, right? so the Father is, has loved me, Jesus says, and I have abided in that love, so have I loved you. Now I extend you that same love, abide in my love. Stay connected to that love. Continue to be aware and vibrantly connected to in a deep experience of the outpouring of that love. To abide in the vine is to stay in a present and, and, and vibrant experience of being loved by God, where we are receiving the love that he extends to us. Verse 10, he goes on and says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. All right, we need to be careful with this, because you read this, and it sounds like, okay, if I'm going to be loved by God, I need to perform for it kind of what it sounds like. If I keep his commandments, then he'll love me. 
So if I'm going to abide in his love, it's not just about being loved, it's about performing well because I have to do these things to experience this love. And, and that's not what this is saying at all. Okay, and I'm going to dig into this more next week, so I'm, I'm not going to tackle this. This is a, a little bit more of a complex idea. What I will say is this. He's not saying, if you obey, then you'll be loved. He's basically saying, if you are loved, you will obey, and in your obedience, you'll experience more of the love. Think about it like this. There is no love relationship without submission. There just isn't. If you don't submit yourself in a relationship in which you love and are loved, you're not loving you're using. I submit my desires. I, I, I submit my, my agendas. I, I yield myself to you because I love you. And my joy isn't about my joy. It's about your joy. I start taking my joy and your joy. I start taking my happiness and your happiness, my satisfaction and your satisfaction. That's an experience of love. And what ends up happening is that by yielding myself to you, I actually increase my experience of love. And so by taking joy in your joy, I experience greater joy. By experiencing my contentment in your contentment, by, by, in a sense, submitting myself to you, I experience more of the blessing of being related to you. Right? That's, there's this submission that is inherent to every love relationship. If it isn't, it's two mutual users. Two people that are there basically just to get out of it what they can get, putting up with one another because they're the people they can put up with it with, right? It's not love. Love is about submitting yourself, yielding yourself, right? And so basically what he's saying is if you want to taste more of this love, you're going to need to push into this relationship in which you're going to yield more to the love that I extend to you. Because if you love me, you'll do what I command. So what does he command? We'll take a look down at verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. What's his command? So if you have this image, it's love. If you have this image of following Jesus as, as being religious and, and improving yourself and going to church and performing and, and, and moving toward moral excellence and all this sort of stuff, that, that somehow that's what Christianity is all about. It's making good people better. You're missing the boat. You don't understand Christianity. I'm just going to be blunt. Christianity is about being loved. It's the love of God extended to us in Christ, and it's in the experience of that love that we are changed. What's the commandment that we're to obey? To love, right? When Jesus was challenged by the religious leaders of his day, they were trying to trap him, and they said, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And they were hoping that whatever answer he gave, they would be able to divide his followers, right? Some people would say it was this. Some people would say that. The rabbis always debated this sort of stuff. Jesus came back with an answer they didn't expect and didn't know how to refute. He said, you will love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you will love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Everything depends on this. This is the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. This is the foundation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Love God in response to his love, and love others as you love yourself. What's the commandment of Christ? Love. Deeply, deeply experience love, and then in that experience of being loved, move out in love to share it with others. That's the commandment, right? So in verse 12, what's the commandment of Christ? That you would move in the love you've been given and share it with others. That you would love as you have been loved. Then in verse 13, Jesus says something truly provocative. In verse 13, he says this. 
Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone would lay down his life for his friends. All right, so let's deal with the obvious and really most powerful application of this. Right? As Jesus speaks these words, we know he is foreshadowing his own behavior. Right? He's speaking to his disciples, and he's saying to them, there's no greater love than that a, that a man would lay down his life for his friends, and he is getting ready to go lay down his life for them. He's foreshadowing his own behavior. He's foreshadowing his own mission. He's saying, look, I'm going to prove to you I love you. I'm going to demonstrate my love for you because there's no greater love than that a man would lay down his life for his friends. He is going before them to die for them, right? He is, he is going to go take their place of judgment so they could stand with him in his place of glory. He's going to take their shame, their guilt, the weight of their rebellion against God. He's going to become the embodiment of that rebellion against God and be crushed on their behalf so that in him they might find forgiveness and renewed connection with God, the source of life. They could be forgiven. So what's interesting is is that Jesus isn't commanding us to do anything that he himself has not done. He's not saying, hey, you guys, I'm going to command you to go do this because it's good for you. He's saying, I command you to do this because it's what I do. It's who I am. I'm going to show you what this means. I'm going to go ahead of you, and I'm going to lay down my life for you, my friends, that you might have life that you couldn't earn. So this is an incredibly beautiful picture of the gospel, the good news, that God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, that he has performed in ways we could never perform, that we could be accepted in ways that we could never earn, that that Jesus did for us what we couldn't do, and in doing it earned for us what we could never earn. It's a beautiful demonstration of love. But in this statement, you guys, there's something else going on here. Something a little more subtle, but just as challenging to us. In this statement, Jesus is comparing two kinds of love. Now, to dig into this, we need to do a little bit of background work, okay? Uh, I love the English language. Uh, as many of you know, I, I, was a former, I was an English teacher in my former life, right? Uh, 17 years as a teacher and a principal, and I, I love the English language. I love to write. Uh, I love to read, I love poetry, I love the power and complexity of language, and I love English uh, mostly because, um, because it's my language, right? It's wonderfully adaptive. But in some cases, it's maddeningly frustrating, and that's the challenge with language. So like in English, uh, one of the areas I really get frustrated is with the word love, right? Love is like this Swiss army knife of words. It is designed to do everything, right? And so we use that word a lot, but we mean very, very different things each time we use it, right? So like, I love Lauren, my wife. I love Lauren. I also love carne asada tacos. You know what I'm saying? I love carne asada tacos, like a good carne asada taco on a, on a corn tortilla. It's got to be corn, right? Cilantro. All right. Um, it's almost lunchtime. So I love carne asada tacos. I love mountain biking and outdoors. Right? I love pushing myself physically and, 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 and doing things that kind of scare me a little bit. I mean, I love the rush of just kind of pushing myself. I, I love action movies. It's been a good beginning of the year. 
Just tell you that. I love action movies. There's been some great action movies coming out. And I mean something very, very different by all of these statements. Right? I love my wife. I love tacos. Hopefully I mean something very different by those two statements. Right? So in English, we have the single word love. In Greek, Koine Greek, that's what the Bible was written in. That's the Greek Jesus spoke. That was the, the classical Greek language that, that, that this was all taking place in. In Koine Greek, there were actually four words for love. They all meant love. So, so the readers would have understood each of these words to mean love, and they would have been familiar with each one, but each one had a different nuance. Each one had kind of a, a different focus uh, for what love means. And those four Greek words are agape, eros, storge, and phileo. Agape uh, was a word that, that meant selfless love, self-giving love, divine love. Interestingly enough, agape um, is a word that was used very, very little in classical Greek. So it existed so by the time Jesus came on the scene, the word was in existence. People knew the word, but most people didn't use it. You know why? Because this kind of love is incredibly rare, and we don't even know how to describe it. A self-giving love, a love that's not based in the emotions, so it's not about my response to you. It's based in the choice. I choose to love you. That's what agape means. It was a word that existed but, but was in very little use. Jesus took that word, and he used it almost exclusively. So he took this word, and, and, and he really infused it with an, an incredibly new meaning, right? Uh, the meaning of his very life, the, the meaning of his very mission, agape love, this, this selfless, self-giving love that is not based. It doesn't come from the fact that you're attractive enough to earn it. It comes from the fact that I choose to give it to you. It is self-giving, not self-responding love. Eros um, is a word that was also in common use in... Um, ancient in, in, the, in the Koine Greek, eros, from which we get our English word erotic. Um, it, it means um, romantic love, sexual love, erotic love, right? It was the kind of love that comes when, when you have a spark between a man and a woman, and, and there's this, this warm place of desire where they are both drawn, right? We, we've all uh, probably experienced that with that, that initial crush kind of feeling where it's like you're both, you know, you're just both attracted. There's this, this magnetism that's pulling you together, right? And it is intoxicating. It is, it is uh, vibrant. It is, it is enjoyable, right? Um, erotic love is very, very powerful. Uh, romantic love is very real and very significant, right? Storge is family love or familial love. Uh, storge has more of the idea of possession to it. So um, not a bad way, but in a family way, right? So, so eros or romantic love is often exclusive, right? When you feel it with somebody, it becomes exclusive. There's a sense a, a circle is drawn around that relationship. It is, it is generally a very small circle where that is experienced. Um, family loves the same way. So with storge, it's a very real possessive love toward an individual. Think about it like this. Moms, when you, when you see your child, there's a very, very real sense in which that child is yours <laughs> and nobody else's, right? When you walk into a room, there may be 12 really cute kids on the floor, but yours is there, and they're not as cute as that one. You know what I'm saying? Like when you see that one, something happens inside of you that is unique. It is possessive, isn't it? It's even fierce, right? A mother's love is fierce, right? In family love, there's a sense of possessiveness. You're my brother. You're my sister. You're my mother. You're, you're my child, 
right? It is exclusive and it is possessive. It's the sense in which you belong to me. And in many ways, I belong to you, right? So storge is this sense of family love. And then there's phylos. Phylos is a word that means friendship love, uh, brotherly love. That's the way it's often described, although uh, in the sense of, of um, being very, very good friends as opposed to family members. Um, phylos is, a, is, is the root of like Philadelphia, right? The, the city of brotherly love. Uh, it's incredibly misnamed. Um, if you've been there, it's a great place. Get a great sandwich. Um, uh, but uh, uh, phylos is this idea of, of, of intense friendship, of, of connection with another people. Now, what's interesting is that phylos love uh, is a little bit more open-ended because you can have phylos love for many people. It's not exclusive. Phylos love is, is not uh, mandatory, so it doesn't just come because you're born into the same family or, or because you, um, you kind of both fell into love, right, into the same pit of love. It, it, is, it, is, it is more of a, an intentional choice. It is, it is broader in its, in its scope and its application. Phylos, the love of friends. Now, what's interesting is the Greek words eros and storge are not used in the New Testament. Now, they were used in New Testament times. Everybody who read this in the original language have been familiar with those words, but, but those words aren't actually used in the text. Agape is used a ton. By far the most used word for love in the Bible, in the New Testament. Um, but right behind it is phylos. Phylos is used extensively in the New Testament to describe our experience of love. It is, in fact, a, a very important word. So, so let me explain a little bit about how these words play out in dynamics. C.S. Lewis wrote a great little book called The Four Loves in which he explores the dynamics of these four words, right? He's looking at these, these words from Greek and he's describing how they actually operate in our lives. And he argues, and I would agree with him, that, that the three bottom loves there, uh, eros and storge and, and phylos, are human loves. They're common human loves that are ingrained into us. We're wired to experience them, and we all have them, right? Agape is a foreign love. We are not naturally selfless in our love. Um, sorge, eros, and uh, uh, phylos are all responsive loves. Agape is an initiating love. It's the love of God. And without the love of God, without the experience of agape love, the other loves actually become complex forms of selfishness. Let me explain. Uh, eros. So we talk this about this like, you know, falling into love, right? As if it were an accident. They were just a pit that somebody didn't mark. And you're walking along and you happen to fall into it. Oops, right? And you happen to fall into it too. Look at that. We both have broken legs. Similar injuries. Let's do this thing, right? And so um, it's something that, that is, it like sideswipes us, right? Uh, it's something that takes us off guard. It's something that, because there's something that makes us respond in a way we didn't expect to respond, right? And so when we say, I love you, what we really mean by that is I love the way you make me feel about me. You make me feel good about me. You make me feel strong. You make me feel beautiful. You make me feel needed or wanted. And I really like that feeling. So I like being around you because I like the way I feel when I'm around you. And I'm glad you like the way you feel when you're around me. Right? So we fall into love, which basically means there's something in you that is sparking something in me that somebody else wasn't, and I like the feeling. 
The problem with that is, in the same way you can fall into love, you can fall out of love. I have that conversation a lot. You know, Steve, I just don't love them anymore. I fell into a different pit, man. It's not my fault. Nobody predicted it. It just kind of happened. Right? What they mean by that is that in this relationship, the things you used to do that made me feel good about me, you're not doing them anymore. Or maybe it's not doing it for me like it used to do it for me. And so as a result, I'm not getting the same response. I, you're not making me feel the same way about me. And as a result, I no longer value you. I fell out of love. Right? It is a complex form of selfishness. But we call it love. Right? Happens with families, too, when, when parents um, start possessing their child, not because of their child's intrinsic worth, but because of what that child does for them. Right? We see this all the time at Little League games. You ever been to a Little League game? You know what I'm saying? Dude, it's t-ball. Why are you so angry? Right? Why are you flipping out? You know why? Because that guy's a little bored with his cubicle. And he sees in his son an open book of glory that he wants to live through him. And when that son doesn't live up to those expectations of glory, it triggers anger, frustration, deep feelings of disappointment in him. Why? Because the storge love is very selfish in that sense. I, I live through you. Your glory is my glory. Your success is my success. I want you to look good because you, when you look good, it makes me look good. Parents do this all the time when they go out to restaurants. Right? We want our kids to behave. Why do we want our kids to behave? Because it's good for them? No, because it's good for us. We always want to be that family, right? When the server comes up and they're like, oh, your kids are so well-mannered. I'm so impressed. You must be great parents. You're right, I am. Storge love, right? It's just selfishness. It has nothing to do with what's good for the kids, right? If they're upset because they're just uncomfortable or they're, they're feeling bad or something's going we're just like, shut up, kid. You're making me look bad, right? Storge love. Philos. Philos love. Um, so when Philos love is, is driven by self-interest, the only real question we're asking is, do you entertain me? Do you occupy space next to me in a way that's pleasant? <laughs> do I like having you around, you know? Like, do I find you tolerable? Because I like to do things with people, and I need people to do things with, so do you fit that category? Right? So we call those friends, Right? People that occupy the same space and, and do the same things. And, and, and they're really, in that sense, of all three, that becomes the most disposable. Because anybody who fits the description, are you pleasant enough to be in this space next to me, fits that description. And it doesn't really matter to us who, who takes that space. We just want somebody there. An activity partner, uh, somebody who makes us laugh, somebody who enjoys the same movies that we enjoy. Somebody who makes me feel good about me in my social activities, right? They're very selfish, very self-serving. Now, here's the challenge. They're all still, in a complex way, real forms of love. But because they're self-centered in their nature, they actually shrink your experience of genuine love. Like, when you are committed to it just being about your experience, the horizons shrink. The boundaries of your joy get smaller because self-obsession, self-focus is like a black hole that pulls joy in 
instead of expanding the experience of love. That's where agape comes in. That's why we so desperately need the selfless, self-giving love of God to come in and fill our hearts and transform our desires. Because when, when we are being fed by the outpouring of an infinite love, it allows us then to move from that place of being fed to genuinely caring, feeding, and loving others. Not because of what they do for us. That agape comes into us, and then that agape infuses the other loves. So a romantic love infused by agape love allows us then to love someone not simply because of the way they make us feel about us, but because we truly just delight in them. We lay down our lives for them. Right? It allows us to, to love our children and not resent our children. Right? It allows us to treasure and love our friends instead of just use our friends. We need agape love to come in and, 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 and bring vitality and life and power to what are our innate human loves. That's why we need the gospel. There is no message more profoundly impacting on the human heart than the message of an infinite God reaching out to us in infinite love. To unconditionally, because he is working with agape love, that, that self-giving love that is residing in his choice to love you, not in his response to you. He didn't fall in love with you, and he's not going to fall out of love with you. He chooses to love you, and because it resides in his sovereign choice, it is absolutely unchangingly secure. And he demonstrated how powerful it is by giving his son, that his son might die for you, that you might be forgiven and reunited with him. That kind of agape love comes in and frees your other loves from being primarily self-centered. This is what Jesus means when he says, abide in my love. Allow that agape love, that self-giving love, that selfless love to come in and transform you, to feed you, and to free you. Because it will empower you to love people instead of use people. Now here's the thing, you guys, if we're honest, we don't view all forms of love equally. We don't in our broader culture, and we don't in the church. If you were to ask most Christians how they would rank the importance of love, it would probably reflect the list, right? Well, agape love's on top because, of course, we're Christians, <laughs> right? It's got to be something blasphemous if we were to say God's love. God's love's the best. It's the best love, right? That's why it's on my coffee mug. Agape love, right? That's the best. And the second best love, like the second most important form of human love, is romantic love right? It really is. It's the, the highest form of love. It's the, the deepest, most powerful experience of intimacy, right? To be in romantic love and covenant relationship with one person experiencing sex, which is like the most profound and deep experience of intimacy. And then below that is family love, right? Because kids are important and they might drive you crazy, but you got to love them, Right? You've got to love them because they're yours and they're nobody else's. And they're little yous running around. And if you don't like them, it just means because you don't like yourself. Because that's you, right? And, 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 and that's who you are. And it's really important. But it's not as important as romantic love because you've got to keep the marriage first. Right? Got to love your spouse more than you love your kids. You've got to keep things in order. Right? Keep that marriage love first and then you love your kids. And then finally, down on the bottom, 
the most disposable and fragile form of love is friendship. Friendship. If you have it, great. If you don't, great. Right? And, and these orders might change a little bit, right? If you're in your early 20s, romantic love's way at the top. Like, way. That's, that's, I have to have that or I will never, ever, ever, ever be satisfied in life. Right? And then you get into your mid-30s and you got kids and all the rest of it, and you're like, eh, all right. I just want dinner. Um, right? So I'm going to work hard. I'm going to provide for my family. Storge love, you know? So sometimes storge, you know, you're I've got to just take care of my family someday. We'll be empty nesters and we'll be able to be romantic again, right? That, that kind of, depending on life stage stuff. Some people would even argue biblically and say, well, obviously it's biblical because Genesis 1 and 2, God created marriage. It was the first relationship ever created. And that proves it is the most important and most vital of human connections. Every person should either be getting married, have gotten married, or want to be married. Because it is the most important and vital of human connections. And sex, sex is the most intimate form of intimacy. And God designed sex to be experienced in the bonds of covenant marriage, so therefore everybody should be married so that they can have sex. And if you don't, you're missing out on God's greatest gift of community. That's absolutely unbiblical. And it is wrong. And it actually flies in the face of what Jesus is saying right here in this passage, right? In John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. All right, this statement isn't just describing his own behavior. And it's not just describing how to show love. He is actually telling us something about love itself, right? Because when we expand this, what he's really saying is there's no greater love, expression or experience of agape love. That's the word he's using there. So God's love for us, there's no greater expression or experience of God's love than laying down your friends for those, laying down your life for those that you love. The word he used there is phylos. We have our deepest and most profound experience, the love of God, as we push into an experience, friendship. In friendship, we have the most noble, enduring, and powerful form of human love. The highest, most intimate form of intimacy is not marriage. The highest, most intimate expression of intimacy is not sex. The most profound experience of love is not parenthood. It's friendship. It's friendship. The greatest experience of God's love comes to us in our deepest and truest friendships. Can you see why, how, how incredibly sad it is for someone to be married and have kids and not have any friends? Not even their wife and their kids? You can have 
marriage. You can have kids without having friendship. And you are missing out. Yeah, but Steve, isn't marriage like really, really important? Doesn't this make marriage less important? No, it doesn't make marriage less important. This isn't like a pie where if you cut off a bigger piece for friendship, you get less for marriage, right? It's not like, like if by making friendship more important, you're making marriage less important. That, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah, but Steve, doesn't, doesn't, isn't sex unique and a powerful form of intimacy? Yes, it is unique and it is a powerful form of intimacy. And yes, God gave it to us as a gift to be, to be experienced in the sacred uh, bond of covenant marriage. Absolutely. It is unique, but it is not ultimate. Doesn't the Bible compare the church to Jesus in marriage? Doesn't that make marriage important? Yeah, it does. We are the bride of Christ, and Christ is the bridegroom. Absolutely powerful metaphor for for how we relate to God and how God loves us. Very, very powerful. Doesn't that make marriage most important? No, it does not. Because you know what else the Bible also tells us? The Bible tells us that marriage is temporary. When Jesus was asked uh, about Levitical law, which I won't dig into all that, he came back with an interesting answer. He said, when you get to the kingdom of heaven, when you move into the age that is to come, there will be neither marriage nor giving in marriage. Marriage is temporary. Marriage is not eternal. Family is temporary. Family is not eternal. Does that make them less important? Absolutely not. It means they're going to be swallowed up by something that's more important. You know what they're going to be swallowed up in? Phylos love. The common bond of community in which we love and are loved, in which we know and are known, where we value and we are valued. The only eternal form of human love is phylos. The others are going to be swallowed up. Does that make marriage less important? No, it does not. But it definitely means that we're off base if we're saying it's the absolute must. It means that our perspective is wrong. Romantic love is not eternal. Family love is not eternal. They're going to change and become something better. Intimacy, listen to me, intimacy is a fundamental human need that is most most powerfully and profoundly met in genuine friendship. Intimacy is a human need. Sex isn't. Yeah, it is. Yeah, no. You can live without sex. But you cannot live without intimacy. Intimacy is the fundamental human need. Friendship is the fundamental human need. Listen to me. The greatest marriages aren't defined by great sex. Now, the greatest marriages probably have great sex. That's awesome. But they're not defined by great sex. You know what they're defined by? A great friendship at the heart of the marriage. It is the phylos love, the deep and abiding, loving and being loved, knowing and being known, valuing and being valued, that gives power to the romantic love. At the heart of a good family isn't just storge love. You can have the most possessive and closed-off family in the world. That doesn't make it a great family. What you need at the heart of that family is phylos. What you need is a deep and enduring friendship for one another. One of the most profound experiences in my life is when my kids grew up and they were no longer just my children, they became my friends. 
I can't tell you what a, what a profoundly expanding experience of love that was for me to go from, from having storge love, this possessive father love, to moving into the phylos love, where we release somebody to become what they've been designed to be. We no longer try to control their future or define their boundaries. We simply delight in them for who they are. We know them and are known. We love them and are loved. We value them and are valued. The deepest, most profound form of love is friendship. And it's in friendship that we experience our deepest and most profound experience of the love of God. It is, it is the greatest experience of agape. Experience and expression of agape comes when we lay down our lives for our friends. When we develop long-term, meaningful friendships, deep connections in which we are vulnerable and they are vulnerable with us, in which we are, are, are hiding nothing and we're laying down our lives. We're laying down our defenses. We are laying down our performance. We are laying down our image and people actually know us. All right, so I'm going to wrap this up. Next week, we're going to be digging in again to some very practical things, but I want to close with a few things. So when we, when we get this wrong, which we do, and we idolize marriage, we make it the ultimate when, when biblically it's not, when we idolize family and say that, you know, if you don't have it, you're supposed to go get it. If you can't go get it, well, enjoy being a second-class citizen. We get it wrong. Um, we increase the isolation of those that are not married. And we give them really dumb answers like, well, the solution to your isolation is to go get married. When Jesus himself, by the way, was never married. Jesus, who had the ultimate experience of community, was himself a single man. And, and notable leaders in the church were singles. The goal of every single doesn't have to be to get married. The goal of every single needs to be to have community. Deep and abiding community. Married folks, when you idolize your marriage, what you do is you create little castles in which you celebrate what you consider is the highest and most sacred form of intimacy and you exclude others who desperately need it. You are defrauding them and you're robbing yourself. Your table should not be an altar of self-focus, self-glory, and self-celebration. Your table should be a common place of grace in which you invite others in to experience the love with which you have been loved, to expand the borders of the phylos love in your community, and to love well. Singles, when you settle for activity partners, shallow relationships, and exchanges, you're shortchanging your own heart. You need to push in. Expect more. And take greater risks. But I want to make it very, very clear. 
church often has not treated singles well. And we have often laid the blame of their isolation on them, and for that I am sorry. Because as others move into deep experiences of intimacy and friendship, it is incumbent on us to share that. You are valuable. You have much to give. And we desperately need it. Seek it out. We need to push in to a deeper, more profound experience of phylos love in our community. You guys, our culture is dying for it. And insofar as we reflect our cultural's idolatry of self-serving, self-focused love, we shortchange the power of the gospel and misrepresent Jesus. We need to be a city set on a hill. We need to be a light. And in that light needs to be an intimacy of friendship, an invitation to relationship, an openness to move out. You know what that's going to require? A laying down of our lives. It's going to get in the way of our pursuit of our um, low-maintenance, hassle-free lives. It means we're going to have to invite people into our mess. We're really good at entertaining. We're really bad at hospitality. We love to to invite people in to see this virtual image of ourselves, right? So if we're going to invite people over, we need to make sure we have time for our 10-minute tidy, which actually means about 10 hours. Because we need to make sure that whoever sees inside our home actually sees the imaginary version of it that we keep in our head most of the time, not the reality of the mess. But intimacy requires vulnerability, and vulnerability requires us to lay down our lives, to invite people in, to know us in our weakness, and celebrate us in our brokenness, and connect with us in our need for grace. And that only happens when we are emboldened by the gospel to lay down our lives for the good of others. We need to be a city set on the hill, people pursuing genuine friendship. Genuine friendship is the secret of a great marriage. Genuine friendship is the secret of great parenting. Genuine friendship is the secret of being single and being filled of being filled with joy and purpose and commonality with others. And friendship is the secret of a great community. Not just a community that's good at faking it, right? The church with the fellowship hall in the basement where anything but genuine fellowship actually takes place, right? You drink coffee, you shake hands, you see the Pinterest version of one another, and then you go home, right? A genuine, vibrant experience of community requires a genuine, vulnerable push into a deeper experience of friendship. And in so doing, you experience more of the deep and powerful agape love of God. All right, next week, we're going to be digging into the practicalities. How do we make this work? What does it look like? It's kind of messy. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. We're going to move into a time of response. I'm going to put some questions up on the screen. Um, and we'll share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that You're the friend of sinners. Jesus, what a profound statement when you said, I call you friends. You not only work for us, you delight in us.
not the best version of ourselves, not some future self, not the Pinterest version that we love to imagine. You love us. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to love one another. That we would come to value as you value, to know as you know, and to build the kind of community that reflects the genuine values of the kingdom and not just the broken values of this world. Spirit, I pray that you will bring comfort to those that are isolated and hurting. I pray that you will bring comfort to those who have been wounded um, by the church, by relationship, by people that were insensitive. I pray, Lord, that you would embolden us with a deeper and more profound experience of your love, that we might from that place be able to move out and share that love with others. You guys, take a few minutes. Pray. We're going to share communion in a moment.